With that, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can turn to page 811 in the pew Bibles that, that are there in the pew rack in front of you and uh, grab that sermon uh, insert as well. And for some time, uh, we've been in a series that we've entitled Upside Down Kingdoms and looking at how Jesus, through his Sermon on the Mount, teaches us uh, what it means uh, to live differently. And Jesus, for some time now in our study of this sermon, has told us that we are, as followers of Jesus Christ, going to live, live very differently uh, than our friends and family and those in the world. And he's been telling us systematically that, that upside-down thinking is going to impact some aspects of our lives. So first, it would start with our attitudes. And Jesus said that our attitudes as followers of Christ are going to be different. The way we think about ourselves and our relationship with God and, and our relationship with others is going to be different. He's going to seek for us to be pure at heart and poor in spirit, to be those who are meek, who mourn over our sins, uh, who are peacemakers, who are pure in heart. And then Jesus says, you're going to take those attitudes and you're not just going to keep them for yourselves thinking the right thoughts, but those, are, those attitudes are going to lead to actions. And then for some time we spent looking at different actions, how we are to treat others, how we are to engage in our life with our spouse and, and in our relationship of oath-taking and, and swearing by things. Uh, those types of actions, God has said, we need to live very differently. It's going to impact how we relate to the world around us. And then for these last couple weeks, we have focused in on the issue of affections, our relationship with God. We've done so through the idea of giving, praying, and fasting. Now, when we talk about these things, right away we think, well, giving and, and praying and fasting all have to do with my relationship with God. And yes, they do. But here is the master teacher, Jesus, reminding us that even as we relate with him, there's a relationship that is going on that has implications as well. Let me explain. When we give, we are not only giving back to God, but the Bible says that we are giving to others. As we give our tithes and offerings to the Lord, yes, we're honoring God with our giving, but we're also honoring others as we serve those through the generosity that we show. Then we get to prayer, and prayer is a reminder that our Christian life isn't just about others, that it isn't just about serving others. Prayer is a reminder that we have a God, our Father who is in heaven, whose name is to be hallowed, and we are reminded of the importance and priority of engaging in that personal relationship with our God. But then comes fasting. And in fasting, we are going to see that it involves not a relationship with others, not per se a relationship with God as the focal point, but now Jesus is reminding us about how we are to relate to ourselves. Fasting is going to have to do with my body. It's going to have to do with its needs, its desires, its wants, uh, its uh, hungers and, and appetites. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others, then a vibrant, healthy, and mature Christian is one who is able to keep his appetites or her desires under control, not pursuing them for selfish gain, but for the glory of God. And so as we show our affection to God this morning, we recognize that that attention must be put on how we relate with ourselves. 
And so let's look at this issue of fasting. It's an issue that we don't hear about, preach much in the church. Uh, We don't hear people doing it very often. And so for many of us, this is a brand new ballgame, a brand new thing that we haven't been brought up with. And, uh, And this is why I love preaching verse by verse, because it forces us even to what are seemingly obscure passages or practices that it forces us as a congregation to address it. So let's address it by standing for the reading of God's Word and putting ourselves under the teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to do so under the heading this morning, Fasting, It's What's for Dinner. And notice what the text says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Just a quick show of hands. How many of us want to see God reward us? I just... Okay. Well, then we need to listen to the words of God. So let's go to prayer, asking that the Spirit would open our hearts this morning and that we might be rewarded because we choose to follow God and not self. Father God, by your Spirit, teach us this morning. Teach us what it means to fast. Lord, for some, this is a brand new paradigm, a brand new activity. And so, Lord, open our hearts to hear what your Word has to say. For those, Lord, who have heard this over and over again, reacquaint us with this discipline, this practice, so that we may glory in you, that we may rejoice in you being the greatest of all good things. And so, Lord, lead us, guide us, direct us by your truth this morning. Sanctify us by that truth so that as we leave this place, we may be more like you, not only in our understanding, but in the life that we are going to live in the week to come. Direct, Lord, my words so they may be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Beef stroganoff, beef bourguignon, Irish beef stew, beef brisket, Chateaubriand, sauerbraten, roast beef, Catalonian beef ragu, Mongolian beef, chicken fried steak, Steak Diane, Grilled Steaks Balsamico, Hamburgers, Sizzling Beef, Spicy Braised Beef, Barbecued Beef Ribs, Beef Wellington, Pepper Beef, Beef Jerky, Beef with Broccoli, Beef Burritos, Beef Fajitas, Beef Tacos. Do you see where I'm going with this? Beef. It's what's for dinner. Go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Now, I told the first service, they're not struggling with that, but I knew this service would struggle with that, okay? Now, some of you right away say, oh my goodness, Tim, that is the absolute worst illustration on a week that you're addressing the subject of fasting. And to give you a little background of that, um, the slogan, beef, it's what's for dinner, was a slogan that many believe resurrected the beef market here in America. In the early 90s, chicken had taken on the massive market share of meat consumption here in America. 
pork was struggling, uh, and beef was really struggling. And the Cattlemen's Association tried to do something that would make beef become synonymous with dinner time. And they came up with this slogan, and this slogan was one of the most, uh, if you will, golden advertising agents ever used. Advertisers look at beef, it's what's for dinner, as the gold standard for advertising. Here's why. In advertising and marketing, you're hoping that when you hear an ad or you see an advertisement on TV, that the advertisers are hoping 45 to 55% of the people will have a connection with the uh, product that's being advertised. Beef, it's what for dinner, what's for dinner, has a 90% saturation rate. What that means is when you say, what's for dinner, the response many times of people, 90%, is it's beef. And the reason this is so effective was when the beef industry wanted to see uh, consumption go up, they had to connect that anytime someone thought about dinner, they thought beef. And they got it down to a science. As a result, beef had a resurgence, a renaissance. And so you ask the question, what does a ribeye steak have to do with fasting? Fasting is God's advertising and marketing plan, if you will, to remind us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, fasting reminds us that it should always be done to the glory of God. That when we see food, we do not lavish and think about the food before us, but we think of the giver of the gift. We think of the one who has so graciously and generously given. What fasting does is it reminds us and it tells us that we should not solely put our attention on what is before us, but always go to the God who has given it. And so we ask the question, if fasting is that type of activity, if fasting is that, then why is it that so many of us have never been a part of it? Why so few of us have, have maybe engaged in this opportunity and discipline? Well, here we need to understand a couple things. Number one, the reason why fasting is not a big thing within the evangelical church is because of the issue of ignorance. Many of you and just don't know what fasting is all about. Maybe you've heard about it, but you really don't know much about this truth. To that issue, we are going to not just have you depend on this message, but we have put in the sermon insert an elder distinctive, and we do these every once in a while, to help explain on paper uh, a spiritual discipline, a theology, or something of, uh, regarding ministry that we want to make you aware of. And so inside every bulletin is a, if you will, position paper on, uh, on the issue of fasting, how you do it, when you're supposed to do it, what's involved, and, and focusing uh, your attention on that. And so there's a lot of things in this message I'm not going to address because I'm going to assume that at some point later in this week you're going to take a moment and read that. But then there's some other things that, that come a part of this. You see, this issue of fasting is an issue not just because we're ignorant that we don't do it, but fasting has fallen prey to being guilty by association. How apropos that it is that we're addressing the issue of fasting during the season of Lent. And I want to make it abundantly clear that the elders of this church see no issue with a season like Lent. We throw no, no barbs at it. We say it's a wonderful uh, opportunity and time for us to celebrate and, and to prepare ourselves for the celebration of, of Easter. And, and if fasting can be a part of that, that's a wonderful thing. 
but we recognize that, that the season of Lent has been abused by many people. That we hear from people over and over again that they're fasting something for Lent and they have zero relationship with God. And so they talk about this spiritual activity and they have no spiritual connection to the God whom they say this fasting is, is given to. And so we will hear all throughout these 40 days of Lent of some of the absurd things that people are fasting and, and they have no spiritual value whatsoever to why they are doing it. The final one may be, so you have ignorance, you have that, that people are using it in the wrong ways. Another reason why fasting is not a big thing is because there are many believers who profess Christ who in this issue of affections that Jesus has talked about in Matthew chapter 6, giving, praying, and now fasting, they don't fast because they don't give and they don't pray. So why in the world would they choose one over the other two? And so for many of us, the reason why we don't fast is, well, we don't pray and we, we don't give. And so we say we have this relationship with Christ, but our affections never lead to any type of action to be lived out. Now you say, well, Tim, that's okay because fasting is optional. I want to tell you as we look at Matthew chapter 6 this morning, I'm here to contend that just as giving is an optional and just as praying is an optional for the believer, notice in the text twice Jesus says, when you fast. He's not suggesting it, he's expecting it. He expects the child of God, the follower of Jesus Christ, to fast. And so then that begs the question, if God requires it, if Christ commands it, why aren't we doing it? And so my desire this morning is to talk about this issue of fasting that whenever we come across food, we come across drink, or any other earthly thing, that it will always drive us, because of this subject of fasting, to the reminder of our God in heaven. To do so, we need to address four things that I want to move relatively uh, slowly in the first couple points, and then we'll speed up our time as usually the practice in my last points. But notice the first thing we need to understand, and that is the definition of fasting. The definition of fasting. A biblical understanding of this uh, principle or, or dis discipline will have to come out in its definition from the activity that is gleaned from biblical times. And so we have to understand what does the Bible say on this subject matter of fasting. And I want to tell you a couple things. And you say, well, fasting isn't talked about much in the Bible. Well, we believe in the Lord's Supper. Fasting is spoken about more than communion is. We believe in baptism, and fasting is spoken about in the Bible more than uh, baptism is. And so this is something that's talked about that we need to address. And so we first look to the Old Testament. And, and just to help you, we're not going to look at every passage that is there. I'm going to tell you right away that the Bible is full of passages on fasting. That is where that distinctive in your bulletin will help you. It will cite every verse that I'm alluding to uh, in our message today. But in the Old Testament, we will see that this issue of fasting, this discipline of fasting, under the law of Moses, that the nation of Israel was commanded to fast once a year during the celebration of Yom Kippur. During that one feast, there was a national fast that was to take place. Now, we also know from Scripture that in Old Testament times, fasting was done during times of national distress or emergency. The priest and, and, and judges of, of the Jewish nation's past 
And even some of the kings would declare a national time of prayer and fasting. And so we see this principle in the Old Testament. Now we fast forward to the Gospels. And right away at the opening of the Gospels, we see that fasting is still a part of the life of the Jewish nation. John the Baptist, who is in part a part of this great revival of the nation of Israel, calling people to prepare for the kingdom of God, we are told that the Pharisees commend John the Baptist's disciples for being men who continually fast, that they're involved in the practice of fasting. Jesus' disciples will get pointed out as being men who don't fast, and Jesus says, well, they don't need to fast while I'm here. It's a time of celebration, but there will be a season when I am gone where they will fast. And we say, okay, so John the Baptist fasted. What about Jesus? Well, we know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, driven out by the Spirit uh, to the wilderness, endures 40 days and 40 nights without food. And we see that he is then at that moment, as he is fasting, finding himself being bombarded by an attack by the person of the devil. And so we see Jesus fast. We also recognize that as we fast forward outside of the Gospels, that the, uh, that the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, continue this practice. And that this practice would go on in Acts chapter uh, 13, verse 3, in the church of Antioch. That there was a season of prayer and fasting that went on so that they could determine and seek out the wisdom of God regarding the sending out of Paul and Barnabas into missionary work. And so this is what we see transpiring. Now, I want you to know that in Jesus' day, there had been a changing of what the fasting rules were all about. And what that was is it went from being a yearly thing or a time during special occasions where the people of God might fast as an individual or as a group of people. In the days of the Pharisees, fasting had gone from being once a year and for special occasions to being a mandated twice-a-week practice. In Luke chapter 18, verse 11, remember the Pharisee prays in the temple, and he says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these others, for I tithe all of my income, and I fast twice a week, he says, in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. And it is used as a way of separating you, if you will, the men from the boys spiritually. If you fasted twice a week, you were spiritually mature. And if you didn't, you were spiritually naive. And so during this time, Jesus is articulating the importance of fasting, but not that kind of fasting. Now, as we glean the scriptures and we see the overview of what fasting is in the Scriptures, we will say right away that our definition, which I'm going to get to in a moment, will only involve food and drink. And that is true if we take Paul's words of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 out of the Bible. You see, Paul says something that expands our understanding of fasting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church about the marital relationship. And he says, husbands, you don't own your bodies, your wife does. And wives, you don't own your body, your husband do. And, and, and husband does. And, and, and there is to be an ongoing intimate relationship between husbands and wives. It is good, it is right, and it keeps from sexual temptation running amok within the church. God has given this grace of intimacy, and so you use it 
and, 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 be, and be filled with joy as a result of it. But then in that passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says something that expands fasting to be something greater than just food and drink. Listen to what he says. After saying, hey, you each own each other's bodies, and I want you to be engaged in this marital activity because it is good and profitable for you, and it's glorifying to God, he says the following, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again so that the the devil may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so Paul says fasting is not just with food and drink, but it's in regards to intimacy, that the husband and wife, and I want to be very clear about this because I don't want to start fights later tonight, okay, where one of you says, well, I'm fasting, sorry, buddy, okay, that that kind of fasting, number one, has to be agreed by both. And what the two are agreeing with in their fasting of intimacy is the following. Instead of you and I pursuing intimacy together, together we are going to pursue intimacy with God. We are going to forego the physical intimacy with one another to pursue the spiritual intimacy as a couple for God. And so maybe there's an issue or a struggle or, or a, a concern that a family may have as the husband and wife in that family. It is altogether good and profitable for a couple to forego that intimacy to pursue the will of God through that fasting that has nothing to do with food or drink. Notice also that it is to be agreed upon. Listen, also, it is to be done for a limited time. Uh, That word there is very short, okay? It is to be a short time. And so there is a set boundary of what the time is going to be where that physical intimacy is not going to be uh, partaken or, or participated in. And then notice that it isn't just to say no to that physical act. It is for the purpose of prayer. And so this isn't, you can't say, well, I'm fasting this because I want to show my husband or wife who's boss, or I, I, I want to use that as a, as a weapon. God, Christ, or I'm sorry, Paul is telling us by the gift of the Holy Spirit that when you fast, it is for a specific purpose to pray. And then notice, it is then to bring you back before the devil is able to tempt you. And so you say, well, why would you spend all that time on this? Because this passage tells us that fasting is not to be relegated to only food or drink. And so with that in mind, I want to give you my definition of fasting that I believe is true to the overall uh, or overarching understanding of the text. Go ahead and throw it up there. Fasting is the self-denial of earthly things for a measured period of time to heighten our desire for spiritual things. Now let's explain that as you write that down. First of all, fasting is self-denial. What that means is, is you are making a concerted decision that you are going to give up something. God has not required for you to give that up. God has not said you have to give it up. It is you saying, I am willing to give up something that God says I have freedom to have and be a part of and participate in. I'm willing to give that up. I am making the decision to deny myself. Number two, recognize it is for earthly things. I want you to know right away, and I don't want to forget this, 
You do not fast evil. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a very different meaning to the idea of fasting and abstaining. The Apostle Paul says, abstain from all things that are evil. So I can't say, well, I just want you to know, what did you give up for Lent? I gave up stealing for Lent. Okay? Yeah, and Phil's clapping for me. Well done, Christian man. You gave up a sin. No, that's not what fasting is. We abstain from evil, but we deny ourselves. And the reason why we abstain is God denies that for us. Fasting is very different. Fasting is that we are denying a good that God gives us. Does that make sense? I want to make that perfectly clear. So we give up something of good earth, of, of earthly good for a measured period of time. And what that means is that a, a real fast, if you will, is a fast that you dedicate and you say, I'm going to begin on this day and I'm going to end at a predetermined time in the future. And all of that is built into that fasting distinctive that's in your bulletins. Now, why in the world do we do it? To heighten our desire for spiritual things. It is to elevate the spiritual over the realm of the physical. Now, fasting does something quite amazing. Fasting reminds you and I that we are not just body, but we are body and spirit. It reminds us that we are not just material, but we are immaterial. And so what we are doing when we fast is saying, I recognize that I am not merely flesh and bone, but I'm also spiritual. And I'm willing to say no to the flesh for the sake of the spirit. I'm willing to push down the flesh and the things of this earth to elevate the things in the heavenly realms. And you're going to notice that Jesus is going to articulate this. He says you can't serve God and money at the same time. You're either going to love one and hate the other. We're going to get to that. He's going to say, hey, seek first the kingdom of God here in the next couple weeks. Don't worry about what you eat or drink. Don't worry about what you wear. Seek me and my kingdom first. And so what fasting is, is agreeing with God that the spiritual, while the flesh is important, if you leave the spirit neglected, you'll have no relationship with Christ. And so fasting agrees with God and says, the flesh is important, but it is secondary to the things of the spiritual realm. Number two, notice that within that, we're going to see a couple things that are inherent within this definition. Number one, fasting will speak regarding our hunger. When we fast, we are acknowledging that we are a people who have hungers, yearnings, appetites. That every pang of hunger and every desire that we have reminds us that we are people who are needy. We have needs, we have wants, we have desires. And those aren't bad things. Those aren't bad things to say. We're not to knock those things. God has created us in that way. Jesus Christ, who was perfect, had hungers and yearnings and appetites. He didn't sin in that. What he did is never allowed those things to be elevated over the will and word of God. And so when those desires, when those hungers come, it asks the all-important question. So when you're hungry... When you have a desire for something, you go shopping, you're like, well, i, I got to have that dress. It's a lady talking, by the way. Um, i got to have that car. We've got to get that house. We've got to get this or that. Whatever it is, and it's all, these things are all good. 
God gives. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. God has been so generous with us that all that we have in this world comes from him. And the question is, when we pursue those things, the question that has to be asked is, am I going to pursue these with God or apart from God? And I will tell you, That when you answer that I'm going to purchase, everything I purchase is going to be done with God in mind, you're going to get one response, and that's buyer's remorse. When I look at the things that I've bought, apart from God being a part of that purchase, I always have buyer's remorse. Because I inherently have put within that desire the thought that that desire is somehow going to fill me. The desire is somehow going to take care of an area of emptiness in my life. When I put God as the only thing that will fill me and satisfy me, and that this thing is one way that God helps to satisfy, and this is one way that God graces me with the opportunity to have life and breath and to be able to take care of my family, then that thing stays where it needs to be. It is a tool of God's to show his grace and his power and authority. It shows hunger. Number two, it shows humility. When we fast, there's a recognition that we are not the king. When we say, I am not going to do something, I'm going to deny myself, it's a reminder that you and I are under authority. That, you see, kings get everything that they want. If a king desires something, he gets it. Here's the problem with America. We are producing in our churches the king mentality instead of the servant mentality. And so what happens is, is in American churches, and probably in this church as well, we come into this body and we say, what are you going to do for me? How is Village Bible Church going to serve me? Tim better be on his A game. The worship team better have brought it. My Sunday school teacher better have it because I'm coming. And if I'm not satisfied, I'll go down to the church next door and they'll have it. And then you're not happy there. And so you go to the next church and we're in this perpetual state of what will the church do for me instead of how am I going to humble myself and honor my king? That's the last one. You see, fasting is a reminder that God is the only king. That God is the only one who is the giver of all that is good. You and I remember the scripture says, naked we entered this world and naked we shall return. We got nothing. And so God, by his grace, brings us all these wonderful things. And what he reminds us of is to never allow those things to become greater than God. It speaks of honor. It is a reminder that God, these things are good. This food is good. This drink is good. This television is good. This entertainment is good. This um, hobby is good. But you're better. You're greater. You're more glorious. And I'm willing to give up things that are near and dear to me so that I may make more time and attention for you. Now, one may say, well, my goodness, Tim, if that's the case, then why is fasting not the heartbeat of every believer? 
Well, the reason why is there is a dilemma regarding fasting today. The reason why many of us don't live the life this way is we are unwilling to sacrifice some of the good that God gives for something greater. We are unwilling to turn off the consumption to allow ourselves to delight and devour God in his goodness. But why is this? The answer is there are two messages that are going out for the believer. Number one, there's the message of the world. And the world says, supersize me and do it for your sake. Now, look at what we see all throughout on our billboards and magazines and and, and on our televisions and radios and all of that. I'm in the food business. And do you know the propaganda that is being done to get people to eat food? Now, that's been going on for some time. I mean, who can, who can walk away from a, a steak grilling up on some Kingsford coal? I mean, the smell is a beautiful thing. There's only one couple in this entire church that uh, that, that does nothing for. And there's something biologically wrong with them. Pray for them, okay? There's something glorious about it. It's a beautiful thing. God... God loves meat grilling on the grill. I'm just telling you, he just does. When you get to heaven, there's just going to be grills lined up, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be glorious, okay? But what the world says is that this thing that's good is the supreme good. Think about the advertisements you see. A fast food hamburger in advertising looks so glorious and so wonderful, it is to die for. That you see that and you're just like, i, I got to have that. That's going to take care of all my ills. If I have a quadruple, uh, you know, uh, Big Mac sandwich full of, of 55 patties of ground beef, I will be a glorious individual. And it's advertised that way. And it's advertised that you are lacking. And if you are lacking anything good, then your job is not to fill that need but you're to gorge yourself upon it. And so we live in a society that says, no, don't just eat for uh, the sake of keeping yourself alive. No, if you don't leave the table completely full to the gills, then you have wronged yourself. You have not done, you've done yourself a, a dis, a, a, an injustice, a disservice. I, I know this to be true. Studies say that our consumption, compared to 20 years ago, we are eating twice the amount of food that we did 20 years ago. I know that to be true because I'm in the food business. I will also tell you that a part of quick service restaurants, which would include everything like McDonald's and fast food and even things like Chili's and Applebee's, that the Chili's and Applebee's of today are saying the only way that their customers are happy is if they triple the amount of food that a person is supposed to eat. And so you go today, you're going to go, I know some of you will go over to Chili's or Applebee's or one of those places, and the only way those restaurants are saying you will be happy is if we give you three times the food you really need. And what it says is you're the king. You're the one in control. You're the one who, if you desire it, you should have it. Now, here's the collision that is taking place. The world is telling you, 
you should have everything on demand. Now you say, well, food I get. Let's talk about TV for a moment. We have a culture now that binges on TV. During the last um, uh, snowstorm, Netflix said that one particular show was seen by one in three households in the Northeast area because they were at home. They didn't have anything else to do. Listen to this. During that snowstorm, an opportunity for you to engage with family and friends to maybe do some cleaning. The average watching of Netflix during that snowstorm, average household watching, was nine and a half hours. Nine and a half hours. Is there something wrong with us? Nine and a half hours, that's a whole work day. And then some that we sat not knowing what to do. We gorged ourselves with entertainment all the while family is around us. Here's the thing, that was one show. One show, it broke all the history marks uh, as a result of that. We've got a problem. The world says eat, 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 take in, take in, take in, consume, consume, consume. You're the king, you have whatever you want. Here's the problem, Jesus says... Jesus says, throw it up there on the screen. Jesus says, sacrifice for my sake. Stop consuming. Stop making consumption the God. Are these things good? Yeah. These things are okay. There's nothing sinful. Now, granted, if you start watching things that are sinful, your TV becomes a a sinful uh, exercise. But for the most part, these things that we're a part of are not sins that we're talking about. We don't fast sins. But what God is saying is, is we've taken created things and made them greater than the Creator. That's what Romans 1 reminds us of, that we elevate that which is created over the Creator. Listen, and in fact, maybe even write this thing down if you need to. True joy, true joy and contentment, true joy and contentment are not found in the consumption of things. True joy and contentment are not found in the consumption of things, but devotion to a Savior. True joy and contentment are not found in the consumption of things, but devotion to the Savior. So fasting is giving up the good things that are having an undue prominence in our lives. You say, okay, and and this is where we get, we we start talking about absurdity. You say, okay, someone says, I'm going to fast coffee, okay? I'm going to hit close to home now, okay? I'm going to fast coffee. And others will say, well, my goodness, why would you fast coffee? There's nothing great about fasting coffee. That's not that big of a, a thing. And you say, well, why should I fast coffee? It's not a God. I've not elevated it to a place of prominence. Here's where I'm going to push you. If you cannot get through your morning without six cups of coffee or four or three or whatever it is, and that without that you're tearing everybody's heads off at the office or in your family, then you've elevated coffee to being a God because you say if you don't serve the God, you're going to feel the wrath. And so I'm going to tell you, if that's how you're living, you need to start fasting coffee. If all you can think about is food, or drink, or that activity that you mindlessly go through your day just to get to that thing, whatever it is, no matter how good and noble and honorable it is, then you better get rid of it. 
You better start fasting it because you're allowing that thing to become God over the God of the universe. And you, you know, it's so easy for us to see this in the life of our children. So I've got an 11-year-old kid, and, and one of the big uh, temptations for 11-year-old kids is to have everything that all their friends have. And, and, and all of Noah's friends have some level of technology uh, in their hands. I'm not bad-mouthing that in any bit whatsoever. Those are great, great things. But I also know my son, and I know he needs less things to take away his attention, not more things, okay? And so he's been yearning for this. And, and he was really hoping that at Christmas there was going to be one of those Kindle things or whatever under the Christmas tree. And Santa and the old man didn't come through, okay? So Noah was a sad boy. So I said, well, Noah, I said, you know, so you start using it to create young, uh, enterprising minds. Here I am, an entrepreneur. Son, if you really want something that much, then I want you to save for it. The kid's never saved a dime in his life. In his first 11 years, he saved 23 cents, Okay. I don't know how he did it, okay? Some of it may have been illegal. I'm not sure how he did it. But he comes to me with his wallet, and he says, Dad, I think I have all the money I need to buy the Kindle. I was floored. Are you kidding me? How, where did this come from, okay? I was telling Amanda, we could end the U.S. debt by just putting kids in government for a little while and say, if you can get rid of the $17 trillion, we'll let you have a Kindle fire. Everything would be taken care of. So Noah comes with this money, and he says, Dad, you said I could have this thing if I got the money. I don't know how he got it, okay? I don't think he stole. I don't want to accuse him of that. But he's worked hard to get it. And so I said, before we get this thing, here's what I want to do. I want to start with something small. I said, I had this old smartphone. It doesn't have many bells and whistles to it, but it can bring up some apps, and he can listen to some music that he puts on there. And so I said, we're going to start with this. He got this last week. Can I tell you the kid has been the worst in living with? Terrible. I love my son. And what happened it is as soon as that thing connected to his hand, he turned off mom and dad. And he became rebellious. He became insubordinate. He became, man, that thing went wherever he went. And I'm using Noah as an example. Please hear me. I'm not stupid enough to destroy my son in front of you. I am telling you, you think an 11-year-old kid is bad? Now add 37-year-old dad to it. And my toys and my desires are just a little more mature, a little more refined, just a little bit more. And you know what I do? If I don't get what I want, I yell, I scream, I become a jerk to deal with. And I'll tell you what, you are the same. Perfect example. You didn't hear the phone ring, okay? Can't live without it. God is good, okay? That person's never going to come back to church again. But that's okay. It's not okay. Okay, come on back. We're all sinners in need of the gospel, okay? We live with this stuff, and we say we need it. And what God is saying with fasting is, or are those things greater than me? And you and I have to ask that question. And that's why fasting has to be a part of our lives. Because if we don't make a conscious decision to rid ourselves of these things from time to time, they will devour us. They will destroy us. And Jesus, in his love and his grace, says, I don't want these things to destroy you. They're there for your good. So now let's go to the text and notice what had happened when they had done it. Because they were doing it. We're not. They are. 
but they were still missing it. Notice the distortion with regards to fasting that was going on in Jesus' day. These guys are doing it. And Jesus says, so when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. So what was fasting in Jesus' day? They had gotten it down. They were giving up good things, but notice they were giving them up for nothing greater than image itself. Play actors, hypocrites, used fasting as they did with giving and praying before this to show something on the outside that was not happening on the inside. Now, someone may ask, if fasting is something that a person does on their own, how in the world would the rest of the world know? The answer is they made their fasting to be something that was seen. Notice, how did they do it? They filled their fasting with gloom and not gladness. It was filled with gloom, not gladness. The practice of fasting was to look as miserable as possible. Look gloomy and disfigure your face. Those words, gloomy and disfigure, are synonyms of one another that literally mean make yourself look as miserable as possible. Give yourself the worst possible countenance that every action, every word, every wardrobe choice pointed to how stinking miserable you were and that because of that, your fasting was to be viewed as totally holy and pious. So here's what would happen. You would see me. My, I could say my hair would be undone. That doesn't help. Okay? I'm not shaven. I look sullen. And, and people say, so, so what, why are you so sad? Well, I just haven't eaten for so long. I'm so famished. I've lived without food or I've lived without in modern day TV or, or, or this modern convenience. I, I've done so. I just, I just want to get close with God. But it's hard. I mean, do you, do you realize, I mean, you, I know you're doing those things, and I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't judge you for that, but notice how hard, look how sad I am, sad for the Lord. And that's what fasting had become. It had become this appearance that the more miserable you are, the closer you are with God. Can I tell you, miserable Christianity is of the devil? It's of the devil. There's nothing miserable about Christianity. And they had made it that. And so notice, this is very important. Fasting had become about deprivation and not delight. So let me tell you, if you want to fast or you have fasted in the past, I'm going to tell you that what you've done may be false. It may be totally counterproductive if during your fast you are focusing on what you're living without. Does that make sense? So let's say I give up coffee. Okay, coffee is not an issue for me, okay? But let's say I give that up. Let's say I can't, I, I just can't live without it. And I fast. Okay, that's a great start. But if every time I drive by a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks, that's all I can think about. And, and well, why are you cranky? Well, I've given, up, I've given up coffee. And so, man, hell's gonna be paid from people. I can't do this. And if that's what it's all about, don't fast. It ain't worth it. What fasting is, is listen, I get the opportunity to give up coffee for Jesus. And by me giving up this coffee, or me giving up this TV show, or me giving up this hobby, it's not what I don't get, it's what I do get in return. 
I get to walk and talk with my Savior. I get to embrace my Lord. I get to, I get to, I get to. Fasting is a delight. Let me put it in food terms because that's what resonates with me. I am willing to forego my peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch, as good as a PB&J sandwich is, if I know, and I don't even have to cry about it, if I know Amanda's got a prime rib steak dinner waiting for me at home. Does that make sense? So what do you talk about? Not how hungry you are, but about what's coming in your future. Aren't you hungry? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to leave that appetite for that big prime rib that's waiting at home. We fight over the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the Christian life, and we never get the opportunity to truly feast on the goodness of God. And what God is saying is give up that good for a little bit for the greater that is in return. And some of us are wondering, why am I not experiencing the vibrant Christian life? Because you're too busy living off of the peanut butter and jelly. You're never getting to the rich foods of God. Now, all that said, I want to make it clear that I'm an advocate for fasting. I've used fasting in my past at different seasons of life. In fact, my longest time of fasting and the greatest fasting that has ever happened in my life took place about 11 years ago when this church was considering me for this role. And, and the God, brought, God brought me low, and, and fasting was a key part of that. And, and I don't remember ever making a decision, I'm going to fast per se, but God began to move me into a place where he wanted to bring humility into my life. And I'll tell you, it changed my life. And so fasting is something that I am an advocate for. But here's the thing. If you walk away and say, okay, it's 40 days of Lent. I'll fast between now and Easter, and I'll do these things. I want to I move you to not just a season of fasting, but listen to me, a lifestyle of fasting. And here's what I mean. Fasting is not just done for a measured period of time. That's one truth of it. But I want you to know something about fasting that is taking place. Right now, you have a choice. I will either choose God or my own desires. And I want you to know today, right now where you're sitting, you are fasting. And here's what I mean. Your presence here says, I've chosen this, worshiping God over doing something else. I have denied myself the things that can come so that I can be present with God's people, worshiping and hearing the word of God taught to me and fellowshipping with his people. Now, what could we be missing out on? A ton of stuff. A ton of things. There's a lot of things going on right now in this world, and you're sitting here listening to a bald man preach. You're missing out on a lot of stuff. When you make church a priority. You are fasting. You are saying to the Lord, I could be doing these things which are good, but I choose the better being with God's people. And let me explain what I mean by this. This last year, Noah had the opportunity to uh, be with his baseball team. And he loves his baseball team. He loves baseball. He wants to be a part of baseball. He wants to be good at baseball. All of that is good. We live in America. Baseball is good. Amen? It's a good thing. So Noah's all excited. Spring training's rolling around, and his entire team, his entire team gets invited to be coached by a professional baseball player for a season. 
of hitting and, and fielding. Noah gets this thing. Hey, Dad, Mom, I want to be a part of this thing. When does it happen? Sundays. Son, we need to talk. Let's have a conversation. Isn't baseball, is baseball important to you? Yeah. Do you love it? I do. Is it more important than God? Remember the phone issue? Let me bring up my son a little bit. No, Dad, baseball's not more important than God. We're going to church. Are you mad about that? Nope. I like going to church. And if that means I'm not the best baseball player, that's okay. Can I tell you, man, one of my boys is going to be a major league baseball player. I'm just telling you. Right? Isn't that what we think? Well, you know what? What my son has chosen, he's chosen the right thing. He has chosen, and I gave him that real option. I want you to know that. Parents, I know there's a part where we tell our kids what to do, but as my son is getting older, I don't want him, the last thing I want him to do is I go to church because my parents tell me to. And so I gave my son a real option to take seven weeks off of church. And I'm glad he chose the right thing. And we talked through it, and I gave him wisdom as to why. But I said, son, you've got to make this decision. You've got you've to figure this thing out. And he chose over friendships, over being the best player on the team, or learning from a professional baseball player. He chose church, and God bless him for it. And I'm telling you, just as my son has to do it, we have to do this. So when your pastors and your elders say church attendance is important, it's not important so that we can pad our numbers or we can say, look at how full the pews were. What we're saying is, is don't choose good over the great. So let me expand that. When you give, when you give to the Lord, you're fasting. You're saying, Lord, my money is not my money, it's your money. You're the giver of this money. You're the giver of these gifts. And so in response, recognizing I'm just a manager, I'm going to give a portion back to you. I'm not going to keep it and consume it all for myself. I'm going to give a portion back to you, and I know I could spend it on a lot of other things. But you're more important. You're greater than the things that I think are important to me. So I'm willing to give you a portion back because you've only required a portion of it to be given back to you. So I'm going to give a portion back to you and delight in the portion you allow me to keep for myself and delight in the opportunity to give. Now move from money and to service. And when we serve, we come to church. And we come to church not with the king mentality, but the servant mentality. And so we see giving or serving as an opportunity opportunity to fast our own enjoyment. So there are people right now, they don't even know it right now, in the nursery fasting the privilege of being in here to show a little baby that they are made in the image and likeness of God and that God loves them and so do we. And so when we give, when we serve, when we show up to church, We're fasting because we're sacrificing something of good for something greater. Now, right away, you say, and i got to close this thing out here very quickly, but I want you to know right away you can say, well, look, I give, I serve, and I'm at church 100% of the time. Worship me. God says, you know what you're doing? You're doing the same thing the Pharisees did, putting on gloomy faces, putting on disfiguring your face, and you sit there and say, boy, well, we could really have a new car if we didn't have to give to the Lord, or, or man, my house would look a lot better if I had Sunday morning and Tim didn't, you know, uh, pontificate for the time that he does. I could get a lot of things done. Let me tell you something. If that's what it's all about, don't do it because it ain't accomplishing anything. The only thing it's accomplishing is you're getting your reward on earth. Well done. Great job. 
Great job, knucklehead, for serving in the nursery. Good for you, okay? God says, do it in secret. Do it out of a response that, God, you're greater than I am. You're greater than all the good gifts that you've given. And I'm going to serve and honor you because I love you. I delight in you. It is a privilege. Can I tell you something? Some of the most miserable people I know, miserable people I know are Christians. Sad. And we wonder why when we present the gospel, nobody listens. Well, I don't want to be happy like you're happy. If that's happiness, forget it. I'll live in my sin and be, be disturbed. When we live a fasting lifestyle, we will delight in God. And people will say, tell me about this. You're filled with joy. You're filled with contentment. It's not about you. It's about others. It's about God. Finally, if you don't know yet, let me answer this question. Why should we engage in this? Why should we engage in it? I'm going to give you four reasons very quickly why we should engage in it. If you don't know already why you should be fasting, maybe this will help you. Fasting protects you from becoming a slave. Some of us are in bondage right now to our technology, our entertainment, our hobbies, our children's activities, our own activities, and the list goes on and on. We're, we're in bondage to food and to drink. We're, I mean, we're in bondage to all things. We take that which God has given for good and we've made them God's. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in the race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do so for an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not run or do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. The idea here is that we recognize that all these good things that God gives us can become gods in our life. And fasting says, I'm going to protect myself from becoming a slave. I have a show. I told my small group this. I have a TV show that I absolutely love. There's nothing wrong with the show. It is a good, wholesome show. And it's not Duck Dynasty. But I love the show, okay? But I have had to turn that show off because it takes me from the greater. And it drives me nuts because I just absolutely can find myself inundated with that show. Nuancing it and thinking about the storyline and all of that. And it drives me nuts. And God says fasting is a way to rid yourself of allowing something to become something that enslaves you. Number two, it places greater appreciation on what we have. There are two adages that I want to remind you with regards to fasting and you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You want to appreciate things? Fast them. Absent makes the heart grow fonder. Fasting will allow you to appreciate these things more because you give them up, you sacrifice for them, and you are able to see the goodness in them. We have become so numb to the good things because we have them all the time. So in these moments where we fast, we are keeping ourselves, we, in these moments where we don't fast, we're keeping ourselves from appreciating the gifts that God has given. We make them gods instead of making them our fathers who's in heaven. Number three, it provides unhindered seasons of prayer. Fasting throughout the New Testament was used in connection 
with prayer. Prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. But what does fasting do for our prayers? I know some of you have some real prayer requests out there, and you're saying, wait a minute, this is new to me. I can fast, and and it can help my prayers? Yes, it can. And here's how it does so. When I was in high school, I was a part of the FFA, Future Farmers of America. And one of the things that you got to do is, uh, I loved it two weeks I got out of school, okay, to help on the farm. And, and I got to be a part of planting and harvesting. And in planting, I learned that the planting machine that the farmers use, they pull behind their tractors, is not literally just dropping seed on the ground. But what it does is it has a uh, two-disc system that is creating a bed by which the seed falls into. And it allows, what it does is it opens that channel for every row. It opens that channel, drops the seed in it, and then there's a disc, two discs that bring the dirt back over it. Well, why is this happening? Because if you get the seed into the ground, there's greater chances for it to grow. What fasting does is fasting is not the planting of the seed. That's prayer. But what fasting does is it cultivates the ground and it closes up the ground so that your prayer request can be firmly planted in the ground. It does not guarantee, as it does it in the field, it does not guarantee that that prayer request will be answered. It just makes sure that nothing hinders it from what it's called to do, and that is grow through the hand of God's benevolence and love. And so when we fast with regards to a prayer request, we're not guaranteeing something, but we're guarding that our prayer request is unhindered from the things of this world. Finally, prayer positions us for God's reward. Verse 18 tells us that if we do this right, we'll not receive the applause of men, but our Father who sees in secret will reward us. So when we make God number one, which we're going to hear about over and over again in the weeks to come, when we do that through fasting, what it enables us to do, the reward, we're not given the answer. What's the reward? We want to know what's in the box. And what's in the box, listen, may not be all that inspiring to you. And if so, you need to check your spiritual temperature. What does fasting reward you with? Intimacy with the Almighty. And if that is attractive to you, then God's going to knock your socks off. God's going to show his love and affection. God is going to minister to you in ways you've never seen. So the question is this morning, what is God calling you to give up? Though it may not be bad, though it may be of of real good, there is truth in the old adage that we can have too much of a good thing. Is it food? Is it drink? Is it entertainment? Is it a hobby? Is it it reading? Uh, Is it a certain relationship? Are you willing to give that up? Not so that you may be gloomy, but glad. Not because it will be deprivation, but delight. Are you willing to give God the opportunity for him to commune with you so that you may enjoy him today more than you did yesterday? That is what fasting is all about. It brings us closer to God, and it produces in and through us a harvest of righteousness and blessing when we obey his ways and his words on when we fast. Let's pray. Father God, we've invested some time here today at at something that we haven't spent much time in as a church or even as a people talking about. And so, Lord, I'm thankful for Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. What a glorious reminder that you do give us all these good things. 
but they're not the end all. They're not the ultimate. Lord, we're going to come to a very good thing next week. The subject of money. Money is good. It's helpful. It's, it's, it's a good thing, Lord. But, but we, we recognize, just like with all good things, money can become our God, where we serve these good things instead of God, where we hate God and, and love the other. Lord, we don't want to be a double-minded individual. We don't, don't want to worship other things. We want to worship you. We want to glory in you. We want to live for you alone. So give us the power to say no to things, no matter how good they may be. So Lord, speak to your congregation. We don't all struggle with the same stuff. We don't make gods out of the same good things. So speak uniquely to each one of your children and remind us of the good that fasting brings in the life of the believer. What a grace you've given us to keep us from neglecting you over the lesser things. So Lord, make us mindful of every decision we make, every action that we take, that we're mindful that you are our supreme goal and focus. And let us live according to that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now send us forth, Lord, into a place, into a world that says it's all about us and let us redefine that and say it is all for you. So whether we eat or drink, we do all things to the glory of God who is in heaven. It is by that name and by that God we pray and give all things in Christ's name. Amen.